Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Michael Reed Show, brought to you by AirGrid. Managing and planning the national grid so that everyone has electricity when and where they need it. Thursday morning, the 9th of November. Good morning. With much debate and discussion from now till 11am, this is Michael Reid on LMFM. The relationship that we have with alcohol in this country has long been intertwined with the fabric of Irish culture. Ireland is known for its rich traditions and vibrant celebrations and we often find cause for merriment in raising at last. In fact, many would say there's not an occasion that cannot be celebrated without alcohol, whether that's a baptism, a communion, a wedding or indeed a funeral. However, the latest study from the OECD has shed light on Ireland's unique connection with alcohol revealing that the reputation for revelry might be more than just a stereotype. According to the OECD study, Ireland stands out amongst its developed counterparts, ranking 8th out of 33 countries in alcohol consumption. The report indicates that approximately a quarter of adults in this country partake in binge drinking at least once a month. Sheila Gilhaney is the CEO of Alcohol Action Ireland and on the line. Good morning to you, Sheila, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. It's not the first time that we've been given an accolade like uh, this, uh, and I take it, it it won't be the last time. And I, I gather that there's very little surprise in this OECD study for you. That's right, Mike, and thank you very much for having me on. Um, uh, unfortunately, this is a familiar story for us. We know we have high uh, rates of alcohol use and high rates of, uh, <coughs> sorry, excuse me, we, we know we have high rates of binge drinking, so drinking a lot at, on, on one particular uh, occasion. And, you know, that's particularly noteworthy because uh, it's, it's, it's a particularly risky thing to do. So, you know, right now here in Ireland, four people die every day of, of alcohol. That's nearly 1,500 people a year. Uh, and we, we see not just those incredibly sad deaths that, that occur but we also see you know very heavy pressure on our um, ED um, services on our hospital services there's 1500 people in hospital today because of, of alcohol and we see devastating effects on family as, uh, as, as well now given that we know all of that we also know that there are solutions to this there are things that we can do you know to try and uh, ameliorate this and we can look to other countries you know who have had problems in the past but have been able to actually start to turn this around and Norway would be a very good example of that which would have um, complete ban on alcohol advertisement it would have price controls and it also has um, uh, controls on alcohol availability. Here in Ireland, on the other hand, we have good legislation. We have the Public Health Alcohol Act uh, passed back in 2018, but five years on, 
still not fully implemented. We're still waiting for the really important controls on alcohol advertisements uh, to be introduced. And you know, just very interesting to hear you say there, you know, every occasion in Ireland is mm. a drinking occasion. Now, the reason that we think that is because of the amount of alcohol advertising that we actually see. It's not that it's inherent really to us. It really is uh, as a result of an industry that pushes that message at every possible opportunity. So we have that good legislation. It hasn't been uh, introduced. What we what we have in a very concerning fashion is another department, the Department of Justice, which are proposing to actually increase the sale of alcohol through uh, increasing licensing hours and increasing the, the number of venues where you can actually uh, get alcohol. So this is through the, the sale of alcohol bill. And this to me is just, and not just to me, I will just say to public health uh, people, to ED, uh, people working in, the, in EDs and hospitals, and social services right across the country are really looking at this and saying, now come on, mm. you know, when we have the evidence in front of us, why on earth would this minister, Helen McEntee, um, actually be trying to push uh, an agenda to increase the use of, of alcohol when we know the impact that it actually has on our public services, including the Gardaí, uh, for which she is responsible. OK, but having said that, if a quarter of us binge drink once a month, I take it that the people in hospitals and other healthcare settings are amongst the binge drinkers. Yes, that, that's uh, uh, probably entirely true. That, that can be the case. I mean, we percent of the population would uh, take alcohol, and it is—it's a, it's a huge problem uh, across the whole of the population. But we do know that things like controls on availability, on our marketing and pricing, really can make a difference. So I, I pointed there to Norway. Norway actually drinks <clears throat> about thirty-seven percent less than we do. If we were all drinking at the lowest drinking guidelines, that's about the level that we would be drinking at. Um, but that doesn't happen by accident. It really does need those, you know, uh, uh, cross-population measures, uh, to, you know, to to be to be enacted, to be put into place uh, in order to achieve that uh, that, that sort of re- reduction. And like I say, we are at an absolute loss. Why, on one hand, the Department of Health is seeking to actually reduce our alcohol use. And another department, uh, Department of Justice, is actually going about increasing that, that use. It's, it's very puzzling indeed. Mm. Well, actually, I should say, it's probably not that puzzling. We're, they are responding to a, a very clear push from the alcohol industry to have this. OK. Uh, a quarter of uh, the population binge drinking once a, a month. Uh, what does that entail? So in, in in Ireland, what the, the definition of that is having six uh, or more drinks, six or more standard drinks uh, on a drinking occasion. So six, um, a standard drink would be a half pint of beer, uh, a small glass of wine at 100 millilitres or a pub uh, measure of spirits. Right. So uh, if you had three pints uh, in one night, uh, once a month, you're considered to be a binge drinker, or if you drank half a bottle of wine, uh, once a, a month, you're considered to be a binge drinker. No, a half bottle of wine would be um, uh, that, that. That's actually about um, uh, three, three and a half um, standard uh, drinks. Oh, sorry, there. it'd be about a bottle of wine once a month, would it? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. Uh, or uh, on, on you know, a single yeah. person drinking that, uh, usually within a, um, a, a specified time frame of mm. about two hours. Okay. So I know that that actually sometimes can sound like, oh, well, sure, my goodness, we're only getting started at that point. And really, mm. that's actually more indicative of, um, you know, 
our, our situation here in Ireland, where, which, where it has become so normalised, actually, to, to drink large quantities at, at any one time, that mm. we're not even aware that this is actually um, really quite damaging. OK. I'm, I'm actually surprised uh, at the findings, uh, given what you've just said. Uh, three pints once a, a month. I'd have thought more than a quarter of the population would do that. Um, well, that's, that's uh, you know, from surveys of, of people and their, their responses to that. Mm. What we certainly can see is that, you know, for example, at weekends, you will see that um, the, the, the extreme pressure that actually comes on the uh, on the health services and particularly on EDs as a result of, of very high levels of, of alcohol use at, at that time. Mm. Uh, is it that people are, are lying about their drinking, that they're not admitting to drinking as much as they do? I, I would hesitate to say that somebody is lying, but what I will say is we also know that people uh, underestimate the amount that, that they are, are drinking. The, the HRB actually had a very good um, piece of work done on this called Drinking in Denial, which actually looked at the, the total amount of alcohol that people said they drank, and then we actually compared that with the total amount of alcohol that is purchased from, from sales data. And you can see that the two don't, don't match up. And in fact, when asked, people who were drinking at the very highest levels were more likely to say that they were moderate or lo- low risk drinkers uh, than people who actually were drinking at, at low levels. Mm. So th- that's what I'm saying. Is there is this confusion sometimes in people's heads that, and, and it's really down to the normalisation of alcohol. Mm. Um, that every occasion is a drinking occasion, as, as, as you said, mm-hmm. that we no longer see it, um, mm. you know, for the risky thing that it actually is. Okay. And what would you consider to be at the highest levels? Oh, well, we, we know that there are people drinking, you know, well, well first I, I should say that the low-risk drinking guidelines uh, for women would be 11 standard drinks a week, for men, 17 standard drinks a week. And actually, internationally, that's considered quite high. Um, other countries, um, Northern Ireland, for example, uh, would much, would actually be much lower than that for their uh, low-risk drinking guidelines. Um, we know that there are people drinking far in excess of that. Mm. that that's absolutely clear. Okay, so that would be, what, uh, about uh, five uh, pints for a woman, nine pints for a man over the course of a, a week and not in one sitting? Yes, and and, and the HSE would also recommend that you would leave at, at least two or three days a week to be you know, alcohol-free completely. Mm. But I, I take it that there's people who go to the pub or drink at home uh, two, three, four nights a week, seven nights a week, as the case may be, uh, and drink far more than three pints at any given time uh, and more than once a month. Yes, absolutely. The, 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 we, we know that that, that is, is the case. So um, we're aware, and one way of measuring really the amount of alcohol is simply to look at the sales uh, figure uh, you know, for that and that, that's actually a, a useful means of, of being able to get a, a sense of, of where we're at. Mm. And on, on that measure alone, we are certainly well above the OECD average in, in that, that, that particular case. We, we drink about 10 litres uh, of alcohol, um, pure alcohol uh, per year, which if you were to look at that, what that actually means. So um, for for a particular drinker, that would be 11 bottles of like dinner vodka, 39 bottles of wine, 35 cans of cider and 235 cans of beer. That's all of those things, um, you know, per, per drinker. So that, I think, is maybe gives you more of a sense, really, of, of how much uh, we, we, we are drinking. OK, and is that detrimental then to people's health? Oh, absolutely. There, there really is no, no question uh, about that. Um, and that's, 
you know, everything really from cancer to heart disease to, to liver disease. But also, and I would really emphasize this, it has a massive effect on our mental health. And, you know, we have a lot mm. of discussion about, you know, depression and anxiety, but we actually know that alcohol in itself is a depressant and it really exacerbates, you know, other symptoms, uh, things like uh, anxiety. So, Mm. No, it, it has massive uh, impacts on, on our health and, as I say, actually on our family life, on community mm. life as, as well. And that's really why we are calling on the government to take a second look at the sale of alcohol bill. And we would say that there really needs to be a health impact assessment carried out on that bill before it goes any further. And that's mm. actually a recommendation of the Oireachtas Committee on Justice who have done, you know, who have looked yeah. at this legislation mm-hmm. and made that very strong recommendation that there really needs to be a health impact assessment. So we mm. know that the Department of Justice has certainly heard from the alcohol industry. We want to make sure that they also get that full uh, imp- impact assessment on that bill before it goes any further. And that Oireachtas uh, Committee was uh, to report today that uh, is uh, being deferred for a, a week. Uh, but those health concerns that you have uh, about uh, consuming too much alcohol, uh, do they apply, Dr. Kilheny, to all binge drinkers? In other words, if somebody is drinking three pints in one night, once a month, every month, uh, should they be concerned? Well, again, I just go back to, you know, what the HSC low-risk drinking guidelines are, and they're there for a reason. Um, it, you know, th- th- there is good reason to, to, to stick with the, those guidelines because we, we really do have the evidence that um, th- there, are lo- there are both short-term effects from alcohol, you know, where you, you can see it on people's mood, and there's also long-term effects, and wh- where particularly you will see that, you know, on uh, incidents of, you know, d- diseases like, like liver disease. And we know that the outcomes that we're seeing for liver disease are actually getting worse. Um, you know, other illnesses and uh, that, that, that uh, the health service would be dealing with, you know, the outcomes are, are improving. Mm. But we know that with liver disease, in fact, people are, are getting sicker. We see that particularly where uh, the health service would be reporting that um, there is an increase in younger women actually presenting, you know, with, with liver disease. And very often would would say, they really did not know that their level of drinking was actually risky. All right. Uh, Deirdre and Clenay uh, texting us. Uh, she's uh, concerned about her 18-year-old son, Dr. Kilheny, uh, drinking heavily uh, three, four nights a week, a source of distress for the family, she says. Uh, and she understands uh, that legally he's considered to be an adult and he often reminds her of that when I, I tell him that I'm worried about him. But uh, as a parent, she says, it's challenging to witness a loved one make choices that could potentially harm them. Uh, I'm sure there's other parents out there who are facing similar situations with young adults. Have you any advice? Um, I, and I really appreciate that that is a, a, a difficult problem. Um, I would say actually that uh, the HSE have a very useful um, helpline um, uh, that you can look up their website, askaboutalcohol.ie. They also have a, their helpline, um, which is, I think, really, really good. It's 1800 459 459. And I think, you know, that there, there is good advice to be got there on, on both those, those sources. OK, well, look, thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Dr. Sheila Gilhini is uh, the CEO of Alcohol Action Ireland and maybe you want uh, to share your thoughts on that or indeed uh, your drinking habits with us. Uh, Is it that you would drink three pints in the one sitting once a month 
Uh, and do you believe uh, that it is right to refer to you as a binge drinker because you drink three pints at the one time within two hours, once a, a month, every month, or, or otherwise? Uh, is uh, the uh, guideline uh, a little bit over the top or is that something uh, that we should all be looking at and uh, changing our habits if uh, we are acting that way? You can call us on 0419832000, text or WhatsApp 86 658 email michael at lmfm.ie. Now, the doll was told yesterday uh, that wastewater infrastructure is uh, to be improved in North Louth and in Dundalk. Uh, this follows uh, Rory O'Muraku, local Sinn Féin TD, raising some of uh, the problems uh, that occurred uh, as a result of the heavy rainfall last week and indeed uh, the subsequent uh, flooding. He, he was saying that in Dundalk there are combined wastewater systems that deal with both stormwater and sewage and that there's a pumping station system that simply do not have the capacity to deal with that level of rainfall. This is what Oshin Smith had to say to Rory Murku on behalf of the government. Ishgaran has informed me that investment is continuing in wastewater infrastructure in North Louth and Dundalk to support future growth and development and to meet current demand and support the protection of the local environment. With works ongoing on wastewater treatment upgrade in Drogheda and the preparation of a drainage area planned for North Louth to identify drainage problems impacting the public and the environment following, followed by identification of solutions to remedy those. Right, that's Oshin Smith. Rory Murku is on the line with us and a very good morning to you. Uh, you raised this uh, a number of times in uh, the Dáil yesterday and indeed uh, the day previous. Uh, I, I don't think you were getting the kind of responses though that you were hoping to hear. Uh, Michael, thanks very much for having me on this morning. Look, the fact is, uh, I, myself and yourself dealt with this issue last week. The, uh, my big worry is what could have happened in Nundalk and what will happen into the future. Obviously, there are huge mitigations and there's a huge assessment that also has to be done in North Loud and Carlingford and right through the Cooley Peninsula. But we know um, that we did not have the level of rains that they had in the Cooley Peninsula and we ver- came very close to having what could have been hundreds or possibly even thousands of houses flooded. While we have other issues that I attended, let's say, in around Mount Hamilton, you know, and, and those issues will need to be, have been addressed to some degree, but need to be addressed to a greater degree mm. in the part of Dundalk that I live in, as I say, everywhere between the Red Barns Road and the Alphonsus Road and off the uh, Avenue Road is at times in danger of, of flooding. Now, I am very glad. I also got a response mm. from... Um, from Irish Water. I'm just going to read a wee bit of it. In terms okay. of rectifying the current situation, Ishka Aaron are in the process of preparing a drainage area plan for Dundalk, which will particularly consider areas badly affected by flooding during heavy rains. This DAP is reviewing the size of the catchment area, rainfall and flooding records, as well as the network and pump station design capacities. Well, that's on some level, the best news I've got, because I don't know okay. how many times I've spoken to Irish Water and I've said, mm. look, we need a huge amount of future development here. Are we sure that we are absolutely covered in relation to water capacity? And that's everything from clean water through to wastewater. Hey, there's and another I question, though, as well, is there not? And that is who takes responsibility for it. Will Irish Water take responsibility for this development? Because the current pumping station, I think you said, is being run by EPS Water. Uh, your initial 
uh, questions went to Louth County Council. They referred you to Irish Water. They referred you to EPS. And I think Duncan Smith yesterday uh, referred you to the EPA. And if you weren't happy to go back uh, to Minister Ryan or Darrell O'Brien as the Minister for Housing, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, look, and I spoke. I spoke to Oshin Smith, and I have an int- And my intention is to speak to Darrell O'Brien about this afterwards, anyway. And look, the, the fact is, we need to make sure that on some level that we can ensure, be it the EPA, be it government, be it whoever, that there's some level of accountability. Is there a question sure of passing the book? There's always a question of passing the book because, look, I, I accept Ush, Ishka Aaron has responsibility for this. Um, the only answer that I, they give me in relation to the Coase Road pump station is that it's part of a wider network of pump stations serving Dundalk. So there is not a specific number of people associate, associated with it. And the area is adequately resourced and pump stations were checked prior to and during heavy rainfall to ensure that they were operating correctly. We'll see if that's the case. And again, we know that this is operated by EPS. Um, and the fact that I sent questions to EPS that got sent back to Irish Water or to Ishka Aaron. Mm. Look, the fact is, if, the, if, that is if, <clears throat> if we're saying everything was working perfectly, then we have to say we have a capacity issue. And that just drainage area plan needs to happen as soon as possible. Because if it doesn't, yeah. we are going to be facing, as I say, thousands of houses in urban Dundalk getting absolutely flooded and look people really like there's people who've dealt with far worse circumstances let's say that I, that I have even within my own estate there's people who waters did come into their houses but we, we didn't get anything of the level let's say if you talk about Trinity Close in Carlingford where people had it up to waist height in in you know in their buildings you know mm. absolutely you know devastating results that and, and businesses so we need to make sure we accept we're going to have a greater level of severe weather and um, severe weather events mm. we, we, we know we know we have to deal with that we know that we also need flood protections and there are plans for these in North Loud and Dundalk particularly we need to make sure that they are progressed and not to any level held up but we also need to make sure that we don't end up flooding because we do not have a wastewater system that actually operates everybody that lives in Clunende, in Avondale uh, in Bay State in Greenwood Drive mm. knows from time to time we get and I'm going to call them minor. You know, people yeah. might take, think the more severe. We're dead used to it. Heavy rains cause minor flooding. And we all, at times, people say, obviously, there's drainage problems, there's blocked drains. Yeah. And there are. I've been brought multiple issues of, you know, legacy issues that yeah. we also need to deal with. And when, you, when, when, you, when is, you're talking about minor, you're talking about big puddles, but you're not talking about sewage in people's living rooms. No, no, mm. no, no. But the fact mm. is, you were nearly talking about that in some parts yeah. of the likes of Willowdale and Holly mm. Park and places like that, because the waters got so high that they actually went into the into the sewage system. So that's a particular problem. And yeah. people's toilets were backing up. As I say, we were literally one rainfall, one major rainfall away from complete and utter disaster. And that's as scary as can be, because uh, it's November and we've the whole winter ahead of us. And uh, it is, of course, the time of the year when you can expect inclement weather. There's uh, the question about Irish water having responsibility, which... Uh, it, it then passes on to EPS. Does it oversee what EPS is doing uh, and to ensure that it's adequate? And then a separate question uh, about the council. And if Louth County Council, uh, because there's been a lot of criticism uh, in Dundalk and uh, across uh, the Cooley Peninsula then uh, about the water having nowhere to go and that perhaps if the gullies and drains had been cleaned more often that uh, it may not have been as bad. It's, it's gullies and drains and possibly we've lost out because 
from time to time where you would have had localized, you know, knowledge in around where culverts are. I know people talk to me about, you know, necessary were works that were done as regards putting in um putting in footpaths and whatever, mm. but they may have changed the nature of roads and where runoff, runoffs would have happened previously. Yeah. We know in Graham Grange we have an issue with an overflowing uh, pond that has been fed by uh, by the mountain at, at the minute. So, like, we really need to make an assessment on those pieces that we can deal with. Mm. And maybe some things that weren't done previously are. We also need to look at how we actually deal with an emergency situation. Mm. And like I said, there needs to be protocols. We need to decide on like who takes supreme command for the want of a better term. Yeah. Mm. And then if we do need to call in other state agencies um, and central government for very specific resources. And who are these bodies then accountable to if they fail in that supreme command? Uh, if Irish Water is failing, uh, who is that accountable to? Who is Loud County count to, uh, accountable to? Or is Loud County Council a law unto itself? Uh, quite often, issue issued a press release yesterday, as you know, and didn't make any reference to any of its failings, talked about all of the work that it did through this crisis. But who does it answer questions to when it comes to problems like this? Well, I know that a number of the councillors from every political party, including my own, I know that, let's say, Adele Corrigan, Kevin Mean, and Antoine Waters, who would have had huge issues in the Cooley Peninsula, basically threw a hell of a lot onto their agenda. And some questions were generally answered and some questions uh, will reply will, will be replied to them in the near yeah. future. I have also my own questions in. I'll be honest, I've spoken to the Director of Services. I've told them some of, let's say, the big ticket issues alongside the smaller issues that need to be done. And uh, Myself and some of the councillors will be doing a follow-up in, in relation to that to just make sure it happens. As I say, but as regards dealing with emergency circumstances, we need to find a better way to do it. And I'm not saying you could ever do this absolutely mm. perfectly. We know that Loud County Council doesn't have the sort of manpower that it had in 1982. Hmm. We don't expect that it necessarily will have, but we need to look at what we need as a baseline, and then we need to make sure that we have those, as I say, protocols and circumstances, if it is necessary to call in, be it the Defence Forces, be it the Civil Defence, be it whoever, Hmm. because there are a huge amount of people who felt that they were left absolutely on their own. I think Antoine Waters called it paddling their own canoe. Is the term he used, you know, right, if yeah. you pardon the pun. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sounds uh, more or less uh, the situation that people found themselves in. All right. Uh, well, let's hope uh, Michael, that. Yeah. Just, just before I go, what yeah. I would say is, in fairness, on the Irish water issue, uh, and that is one I've put directly to the council. The council, we need a hands on sort of operation here that they need to be involved in part of this conversation because it's going to fall back on them if we don't get this capacity fixed. No, and any questions I got mm. sent to EPS, as they say, got forward back. It's Ishka Aaron, and even from what the minister said yesterday, yeah. and any, any, anything from the department, they're the lead. Well, the, the, so min- the, the minister didn't say anything. I, I, just, uh, just correct me if I'm wrong. The minister didn't say anything except that there's investment promised at some time in the future. Future. Otherwise, we're talking about uh, a problem that lies at the doorstep of possibly Louth County Council, possibly Irish Water, possibly EPS, possibly the EPA. And if none of them take responsibility for it, uh, then there's not one government minister, but two government ministers uh, who can uh, be approached on, uh, about it. 
Well, first of all, Ishka Aaron are the ones who are in the process. They are preparing the drainage area plan, so it falls on them first and foremost. But Loud County Council and whatever necessary departments need to be involved in the conversation. When I put in this debate, I could have put this in for about four different ministers because we know the roads and bridges. Mm. We know that the transport minister needs to be involved. We know social protection needs to be involved in relation to humanitarian assistance fund. We know the OPW needs to be involved in relation to flood defences and CFRAM and ensuring that all those necessary things are put in place as soon as possible and whatever mitigations. And Loud County Council are meeting with the OPW tomorrow, so I assume my conversations with the council will be far more useful following that as well. And then it's a follow-up on all those issues that have been brought to me by individuals in Dundalk and in North County Loud in particular um, and by the likes of Anton Waters and some of the other councillors. And at times, actually, across political parties, you actually have conversations around what worked, what didn't work and what really needs dealt with. Because we all live in this particular place and we'll individually be impacted as well. Mm. But there's some people who are facing absolute uh, ruin if we do not deal with these issues. I don't think I'm being over the top when I'm talking about, from a flooding point of view, what you could be talking about, Doomsday or Armageddon. We really need to make sure the mitigations are done and we have fit for purpose system. Otherwise, we won't be building any more houses or factories. Well, yeah, and we, we don't want somebody here in a, a few months' time saying, I told you so, <laughs> after the event. Look, we'll leave it there for the moment, Rory. Thank you indeed Thank for you joining us on the programme. Rory O'Murico, Sinn Féin TD for Loud and East Mead. Thanks to Deirdre and Cals saying, thank God I don't take a drink. I'm a pioneer. I am 60 years of age. I go to a pub now and then. I take a Deirdre, but she drinks diet drinks. Uh, Paddy in touch with us saying, it's time we sobered up and grew up. Uh, another text then from somebody who says, good morning, Michael. Three drinks a month. Let's see struggling pubs stay open with customers visiting just once a month for three pints. Ireland and the Irish have a culture that is slowly dying out. Irish people are losing their identity. Kjol, kind August crack. We'll have music, chat and fun. Uh, and the way we're going, that'll be a thing of the past. Thank you indeed for your text. Michael at lmfm.ie The Michael Reed Show with AirGrid, managing and developing the national electricity grid so that it's fit for our current needs and ready for our future ones. Yesterday, the Labour Party called on uh, the Dáil to end uh, the recruitment embargo on home helps to restore the 1.9 million hours of home help support that was cut in July and to guarantee that home carers are paid the new living wage rate at a minimum. I think we can all agree on all sides of the house um, how valuable uh, home care is, uh, most importantly providing uh, older people or even younger people who need care uh, with the dignity that they, they deserve in life, um, but also crucially uh, enabling people to uh, get, out of, get out of hospital quicker, freeing up beds for patients who need them and enabling people to avoid going into nursing home uh, and the length of time people spend in nursing home has gone down considerably in recent years precisely because uh, home support has improved and people can stay at home uh, for longer. That's the Taoiseach Leo Varadkar speaking after that Labour Party motion which was rejected uh, by the government yesterday. Let's speak uh, to Nat O'Connor of Age Action Ireland. Uh, a very good morning to you Nat O'Connor and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. The Taoiseach there indeed uh, the government talking up uh, some of uh, the improvements and investments that it has made in recent times but there is no doubt that there is a crisis in this sector. There's no doubt at all and I suppose the, the, the 
central focus should be on. There's more than 6,000 people who are waiting for care. And the situation has changed where in previous years, people were waiting to get the grant because there wasn't enough money allocated. Now there is a larger budget, but people are getting the grant, but they can't find anybody to actually provide the service to them. So there's a recruitment and retention crisis within the home care sector. Um, there's obviously turnover of staff and the issues of salary come into that, that people mm. are just not able to make a career, not able to make ends meet as care workers. But the, the focus must be on people now who are in an urgent need of care so they can stay in their homes and, you know, be as independent as possible and have their care needs met. Right, and there's a two-tier system, according to the Labour Party, in terms of remuneration for healthcare workers. Uh, you're paid much better by the HSE than you are by the private sector. Is that correct? Well, there's certainly a, a widespread argument that uh, not only in home care, but in other areas where the voluntary sector or private providers might be involved in providing services, that the HSE does pay more and it recruits people who are currently working for those other voluntary providers or private providers. Uh, and it, it offers job security, it offers sick pay, it offers a lot of benefits. So, so there is a two-tier system, there's no doubt about that. Uh, now, it's, it's not always the case that the HSE are providing exactly the same service, um, but they are certain competing for the same workers and they are paying better. Right. In yesterday's debate, uh, Minister Anne Rabbit uh, was talking about uh, how new tenders provide a core rate of €31 Euro an hour for providers uh, or an average rate of €34 Euro an hour when you take into account weekends. Uh, where does all that money go if it's not going to the carers? Well, obviously there's an administrative overhead um, which the whatever the provider takes, most of the care provision is a profitable business. So they are, there's a profit margin, which is built into this as well. Um, obviously, there's supervisory staff and so on, which is taken into account. Um, but th- th- there is that big question, because over €30 Euro is paid per hour, but the worker is getting, you know, 13 out of that, which is, you know, not, not a lot more than a third. Uh, so, so there is a question. The, the national living wage... Um, set by the living wage technical group would be fourteen euro eighty uh, per hour, and that would make a huge difference in terms of the amount people would be paid. You know, they'd be looking at a couple of thousand extra euro a year mm. uh, into their pockets if they were paid even that higher amount. Uh, the Taoiseach went on to talk about the amount of uh, people who are waiting for uh, care uh, who are still. Uh, without it, you say the waiting list is 6,000. But he he said, Leo Radcliffe said, uh, that is the case, uh, but uh, it was 8,000 when the government came into office. uh, And that's an improvement. Uh, Is it good enough? Well, it is an improvement in fairness. And Minister Mary Butler has brought more money in uh, to to the provision of service. But what we're seeing now is that money is not enough. We need to look at the overall system because what we're trying to achieve is a system where people can age in place, they can grow older in their own homes and get the care they need. It's much cheaper to do that than to provide nursing home care. Mm. But we have an over-reliance on the residential side. So we do need to look about, it's not just about getting the budget right, but it's about saying, well, where, where are the workers going to come from? We rely a, a lot on recruiting workers from outside the EU. Um, but obviously with covid there was fewer workers willing to, to or able to travel to Ireland and to base themselves here. Mm. So there is that element of recruitment is there. But also just it's the, it's the terms and conditions. If we're mm. able to attract workers in, because if you're receiving care, you want to see the same faces on a regular basis. Yeah. 
you don't want to have new people all the time. It's disruptive. It doesn't give you that continuity and that, you know, mm. the relationship that you build up with your care. Uh, and you want to understand them. Uh, I mean, you do hear a lot of complaints uh, about home help when people are in receipt of it. Uh, and one of them is language uh, as a, a problem, uh, not seeing the same people uh, and not getting a, enough hours. Uh, even if you are in receipt of home help, uh, it's a flawed system, I would say. Well, certainly there's a lot more that we need to do. And we need to look at what other European countries have done because they've invested more. Denmark, for example, similar population size to Ireland, but less reliant on nursing home care, a much more developed system of home care. And we know that's what most older people want. They want to, you know, age in their own homes. Um, But we do need to look at career structures. We need to look at the training. And, you know, we need to look at the, the overall package of what, what we're bringing into in bear. Now, the government has made some moves towards regulating the sector. Um, it was an unregulated sector. They've now brought in new regulations through HICWA. That's an improvement. But we've been promised a statutory home care scheme. So you'd have a legal right, at least to assessment, if not a, a right to actually receive care if you need it. Uh, that seems to have vanished. There's certainly no extra money for that in the, in the, in the budget just gone by. Okay, Nat, I have to leave there for the moment. Thank you indeed, though, for joining us on the programme this morning. That's Nat O'Connor of Age Action Ireland. 086-1800-658 The Michael Reed Show, brought to you by Airgrid, managing and planning the national grid so that everyone has electricity when and where they need it. Nitrates cut could be delayed. For more in your Farmer's Journal, here's Paul Mooney. We reveal why Brussels is considering a derogation reprieve for Irish farmers. Irish beef locked out of China again. Suckler cow exodus continues. Thousands of young farmers locked out of acres. Farmers could get up to €50,000 for pylons and farmland. Will there be a potato shortage this Christmas? Plus, our guide to how farmers can secure a mortgage. All inside this week's Irish Farmers Journal. You cannot afford to miss it. How do we keep moving forward? By focusing on what matters. It's why Cupra is making such an impact in Ireland. From the bold styling of the plug-in hybrid fermenter, to the agile handling of the sporty Leon range, and the all-electric Cooper-born e-boost function, delivering instant power at the touch of a button. So what would you like to do? Stick with what you know or embrace the irresistible momentum of Cupra? Search Cooper Official for our latest offers or visit Western Motors Cupra Drogheda. The Black Friday sale is now on at Harvey Norman. Get Black Friday discounts on Sony Smart TVs today. Save 50 euro on the 43-inch 4K TV, now 599. Save 50 euro on the Sony 50-inch anti-glare TV, now 699. Or save 50 euro on the Sony Mega Screen 55-inch TV, now 799. With our best prices guaranteed in-store and online. So why shop anywhere else? Don't wait. Now's the time to buy. The Harvey Norman Black Friday sale is now on. Don't miss out. Life feels better when you know your loved ones are protected. Well, now you can have peace of mind knowing your family's future will be looked after for as little as €10.10 per month with Leia Life Insurance. Simply answer a few online questions, no medical required, and you'll get an instant decision. Join us online and you'll get a 10% discount. Visit leialife.ie now. Insurance provided by IPTQ Life SA. Leia Healthcare Limited, trading as Leia Life and Leia Healthcare, is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. LMFM. With Harry Gary, warming up your home this winter with new season curtains and bedding. In store or online at harrygarry.com. Harry Gary, see what's in store. 
It's LMFM Radio Bingo in association with the Gary Kelly Cancer Support Centre. It's week 45, day 4, it's Thursday the 9th of November. We're on your pink coloured page. Eyes down for today's lucky numbers. 2 and 6, 26. All the 1s, 11. 2 and 3, 23. 3 and 5, 35. 1 and 7, 17. 7 and 2, 72. 8 and 4, 84. On its own, number 2. 4 and 7, 47. And the final number, on its own, number 1. If you have filled out a full panel, please call 041-9876-214 before 10pm this evening. For more details on where you can buy your book, check out lmfm.ie. We had a full panel winner yesterday. Congratulations to Gillian Tully from Kells, who bought her book in A&M Newsagents in Kells. Gillian won €400. That means today's Daily Bingo prize is €400. Coming up on the 11 to 1 show. Ireland's fittest family is back on our screens and now this week a family from Loud will take on the extremely tough challenges. Ken from the Farrell family in Drogheda joins me for a chat. And I meet the busy mum organising a great day celebrating women in business in Phillipstown this weekend. All this and more on the way, so join me, Sinead Brazel, from 11 on the radio online or on the LMFM app. With Gilmore's Mercedes-Benz Kingscourt. Choose from our huge selection of used Mercedes-Benz vehicles. Gilmore's Mercedes-Benz Kingscourt. The best in motoring, here for you. It's almost 10 o'clock on the Voice of the Northeast. Time to fall in love with Aga this autumn. And now with fantastic savings when you purchase any Aga 7 Series cooker in store or online at Dominic Smith Expert Electrical, Navin, Cabin and Blanchetstown Retail Park or visit dominicsmithelectrical.ie. On air. Online. On your smartphone. On your smart speaker. This is LMFM News. The headlines, the family of Jason Corbett say the jail sentences uh, for his killers are not a moment uh, for celebration. His uh, then-wife, Molly Martins, and her father beat the 39-year-old to death at his home in 2015. They've received prison sentences of between four and six years, which includes time that has already been served. There's continuing pressure for a humanitarian pause and fighting to allay, allow aid into Gaza. The World Health Organization is warning that a lack of fuel is stopping waste collection services, leading to a looming public health disaster. An opinion to the European Court of Justice recommends it should support an order from the EU competition regulator for Apple to pay €13 billion Euro in taxes to Ireland. The recommendation is not legal binding, but it is likely to be accepted by judges at Europe's top court when the final ruling is made. Vapes are no longer to be sold in vending machines. It's part of new rules that are being introduced by the government that include a ban on the sale of vapes to under-18s. And figures from the Banking and Payments Federation Ireland show the number of people taking personal loans is at an all-time high. The story is making the headlines on LMFM, a full bulletin at 11am. 
Who's this? It's me. Somebody's killing us. Someone's coming. Culprits. Streaming exclusively on Disney+. Plus. Please help me. I have a family. I'm a part of this world. A brand new thriller from the creators of The Night Manager. If we fight, we die. If we run, we die. This is going to be fun. Starring Gemma Arterton and Nathan Stewart Jarrett. We're going to be dealing with some very serious people. Culprits. An original series now streaming exclusively on Disney+. Plus. 18 plus subscription required. T's and C's apply. Your weather. weather. With Duna Reed Blinds, Beachmount Home Park Navin. The experts in made-to-measure quality blinds, plantation shutters and curtains with free measuring and fitting. All areas covered. 046-909-2800 or dunareedblinds.ie Well, it's going to be a cool and a breezy day with sunny spells and blustery showers. Some of them are to be heavy and prolonged. And there may be flooding, hail and thunder possible as well in these fresh and gusty south to southwesterly winds. Highest temperatures today of between 8 and 10 degrees Celsius. Call Michael now. 0419832000. The Michael Reed Show, brought to you by AirGrid. Managing and planning the national grid so that everyone has electricity when and where they need it. Now, thanks to Mick and Kells uh, texting uh, the programme today. He says, I got up uh, this morning to hear we can't smoke, we can't drink, zero deaths by 2050. Now I'm hearing that if we live through all of this, we'll have nowhere to go when we get old. Uh, we should move everyone away from the coast. Where is all this scaremongering going to end, says Mick. Well, I don't know, Mick, but thank you indeed uh, for making contact with us uh, today. Our telephone number, if you'd like to make comment on the programme is 041 You can text or WhatsApp us on 086 Email michael at lmfm.ie. Now, there is some hope of a ceasefire in Gaza, potentially a three-day ceasefire in return for Hamas releasing between 10 and 15 hostages. We're holding our, our breath, I suppose, because the scale of destruction and the amount of lives that are being lost, it would seem necessarily, are, are very hard for most of us to stomach. There are violations by Hamas when they have human uh, shields. But uh, when one looks at the number of civilians that were killed with the military operations, there is something that is clearly wrong. It is against the interest of Israel to see every day the terrible image of the dramatic humanitarian needs of the Palestinian people. That doesn't help Israel in relation to the global public opinion. Every year, the highest number of killing of children by any of the actors in all the conflicts that uh, we witness is the maximum in the hundreds. We have, in a few days in Gaza, thousands and thousands of children killed. In nothing should reduce our total rejection for the horrible things that Hamas did the 7th of October. But we need to distinguish. Hamas is one thing, the Palestinian people. Uh, indeed, 4,000, at least 4,000 children uh, killed at this stage out of a, a total of more than 10,000 people who have died as a result of uh, the Israeli onslaught. 
in Gaza. That's uh, the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres. As I said, uh, there is hope today of a three-day ceasefire in return for some hostages being released. Yesterday in the Dáil, the Taoiseach spelled out the Irish position. We agree that a uh, immediate humanitarian ceasefire is required. Um, the killing has to stop. Uh, hostages need to be released. Citizens of other countries need to be allowed to leave and we need to make sure that we get humanitarian aid into Gaza as soon as possible. Uh, The government isn't proposing uh, any specific sanctions at this point in time. We know when sanctions work, sanctions work when they're done on a multilateral basis. Uh, Sanctions done unilaterally uh, generally do more harm to the person imposing the sanctions uh, than the sanctions, uh, than the entity on which they're imposed. Uh, So sanctions should be carried out uh, only on a multilateral basis, in my view. Taoiseach, Leo Radker, that's the Irish position on this conflict. Let's hear the American position. All of us want to end this conflict as soon as possible. And meanwhile, to minimise civilian suffering. But as I discussed with my G7 colleagues, those calling for an immediate ceasefire have an obligation to explain how to address the unacceptable result it would likely bring about. Hamas left in place with more than 200 hostages, with the capacity and stated intent to repeat October 7th again and again and again. Ultimately, the only way to ensure that this crisis never happens again is to begin setting the conditions for durable peace and security and to frame our diplomatic efforts now with that in mind. The United States believes key elements should include no forcible displacement of Palestinians uh, from Gaza, not now, not after the war. No use of Gaza as a platform for terrorism or other violent attacks. No reoccupation of Gaza after the conflict ends. No attempt to blockade or besiege Gaza. No reduction in the territory of Gaza. The American Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, spelling out uh, the American position. Uh, And it is the Americans uh, who are part of these negotiations with Qatar and Egypt uh, for this possible three-day ceasefire. Uh, Anthony Blinken making it clear that America is not in favour of a ceasefire at the moment. Uh, And that's a a question of language, whether you say a three-day ceasefire or a a pause. Uh, And many countries like America considering a ceasefire to mean that you stop the conflict and go into peace talks uh, without planning to resume in three days or whatever the case may be. This three-day pause uh, would allow for humanitarian aid to come into those people who are being massacred in Gaza at the moment. Very interesting to hear Anthony Blinken as well talk about after the conflict and that there would be no Israeli occupation of Gaza. That very much at odds with what the Israeli Prime Minister said to ABC News earlier this week. Let's hear once again from Benjamin Netanyahu. Those who don't want to uh, continue the way of Hamas, it certainly is not... uh, uh, I think Israel will, for uh, an indefinite period, will have the overall... Uh, security responsibility because we've seen what happens when we don't have it. When we don't have that security responsibility, what we have is the eruption of uh, Hamas terror on a scale that we couldn't imagine. Do you have a warning to Iran, to Hezbollah? I think they've uh, understood that if they enter the war in a significant way, the response will be very, very powerful. And I hope they don't make that mistake. 
Right, that's uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, the Israeli Prime Minister, speaking uh, to Mark or David Murr, I beg your pardon, uh, on ABC News uh, earlier in the week, saying that Israel will take security responsibility in Gaza after this conflict. Uh, but as you've been hearing, that would seem to be at odds with the American position. I think we've been very clear from day one that when it comes to post-conflict uh, governance in Gaza. Um, a few things are, are clear and necessary. One, uh, Gaza cannot be con- uh, continue to be run by Hamas. Um, uh, that simply invites a repetition of October 7th, uh, and Gaza uses a place from which to launch terrorist attacks. Uh, it's also clear that Israel cannot occupy Gaza. Um, now, the reality is that there may be uh, a need for some transition period uh, at the end of the conflict, but it is imperative that um, the Palestinian people uh, be central to, uh, to governance uh, in, uh, in Gaza and uh, in the West Bank as well, uh, and that, again, uh, we don't see uh, a reoccupation. And what I've heard from Israeli leaders is that they have no intent to reoccupy Gaza and retake control of Gaza. So the only question is, uh, are there, is there some transition period uh, that might uh, be necessary, and what might be the mechanisms uh, that you could put in place uh, for that uh, to make sure that there is security. Uh, But we're very clear on no reoccupation, just as we're very clear on uh, no displacement of the Palestinian population. Uh, And um, as as we've said uh, before, uh, we need to see and get to, uh, in effect, unity of governance when it comes to Gaza and the West Bank, and ultimately to, uh, to a Palestinian state. Right, so we're back to nuanced language, really, aren't we, when we hear Anthony Blinken say no reoccupation of Gaza and Benjamin Netanyahu saying Israel's going to take security responsibility of Gaza. It, it is uh, nuanced uh, because we also heard Anthony Blinken then say maybe there's going to be a transition period. Uh, and I, I take it that, that reoccupation will have the support of the United States in the Meanwhile, the bombardment continues. 10,000 people have died as a result of the conflict in Gaza in the course of a month. It is horrifying to think that Israel has killed 4,000 children and its killing of 4,000 children is, in the Israeli viewpoint, self-defence. Here's what Palestinian kids think about it. Since the 7th of October, we face extermination, killing, bombing falling over our heads. All, all of this of front of the world. They lie to the world that they kill the parties, but they kill the people of Gaza. Their dreams and their future. Kids of Gaza run out of death once and once. We come to Al-Shifa Hospital to keep us from bombing. We suddenly run out of death more after bombing the hospital. The occupation is starving us. We don't find water, food, and and we drink from the unusable water. We come now to shout and invite you to protect us. We want to live, we want peace, we want to judge the killers of of children. We want medicine, food and education. And we want to live as the other children live. Little children scared out of their minds in Gaza and 
Why wouldn't they be, given that 4,000 children have been killed as Israel defends itself? What about Irish passport holders who are stuck in Gaza like those Palestinian children? The Palestinian children have no way out. Uh, will the Irish passport holders uh, be given a way out? There are an estimated 8,000 foreign and dual nationals and immediate dependents in Gaza who are seeking to leave. Evacuations are being managed on a country-by-country basis uh, and it will take time for this process to be completed. The names of all Irish citizens in Gaza who've asked to be included on the list of those to be evacuated have been submitted to the relevant authorities. We don't know when they'll be able to leave. There have been no evacuations of foreign nationals from Gaza over the weekend. Our embassies in Cairo and Tel Aviv are in regular communication with the authorities in Egypt and Israel in this regard. Leo Vradker again, the Taoiseach speaking in the Dáil yesterday. We'll take up on this conversation with Paul Murphy of People Before Profit after the break, Mark. Call Michael now. 0419832000. The Michael Reid Show, brought to you by Airgrid. Managing and planning the national grid so that everyone has electricity when and where they need it. Well, as you heard before the break, uh, the Taoiseach uh, has uh, told the doll that he does not know if or when Irish passport holders will be allowed to leave Gaza. The Taoiseach is in Paris today uh, attending an international conference on humanitarian assistance for the civilian population in Gaza. Deputy, there's also also a a young Irish-Israeli girl uh, who may well be being held in Gaza as a a hostage of Hamas as well. So let's let's not just be one side about this. Um, Our priority no matter who's holding them, uh, is them being able to get out and get to safety. And that means that we need to be able to engage with the Israeli government and the Israeli ambassador. We also, at some point, want to be able to talk about peace and reconciliation and reconstruction. And that may seem ridiculous now, but we have to keep that hope alive. Uh, And while uh, expelling the ambassador um, might make us feel better for a day or two, it might be a story in the international news for a day or two, it wouldn't actually have an impact on Israel's policy, not for a second. You're a bit naive if you actually think that. It wouldn't cause them to change course. Uh, and, secondly, and secondly, it would hamper our efforts uh, to get the hostages out, uh, to get the citizens out, uh, and also to potentially have some sort of role uh, in future peace building and peacemaking in the area. Taoiseach Leo Vradker responding in that clip uh, to People Before Profit TD, Paul Murphy, who's on the line. A very good morning to you, Paul Murphy, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, the Taoiseach telling you uh, that there's no intention of uh, the government uh, to expel the Israeli ambassador, uh, and that is what you had called for. Uh, do you accept the rationale uh, that was laid out? I'm not sure if uh, Paul Murphy can hear us. Um, yeah, we do have, I'm told we have Paul Murphy on the line. Paul, can you hear me there, okay? Yeah, I can hear you. Can yeah, you hear I, okay? I, I can hear you now. Apologies Sorry for that. It. I'm not sure what happened there. Uh, but we heard the Taoiseach uh, say that if you were to expel, the ambassador would have no impact on the Israeli strategy. It wouldn't see them change course. And it would hamper the Irish government's uh, opportunity to negotiate with the Israelis to get hostages and passport holders out of Gaza. Do you accept that? Morning, Michael. No, no, I, I don't. I definitely don't accept it. I mean, people can see for themselves uh, on their phones, on their TV screens, in the newspapers, the 
you know, incredible, unimaginable horror being inflicted on the people of Gaza. Over 10,000 people killed now, over 4,000 children. Israel consciously targeting residential areas, targeting hospitals, targeting ambulances, you know, war crime after war crime being uh, committed. And the question is, what, what are we going to do about this? Um, and I'm not suggesting that the Irish government has the capacity to make Israel stop by any one decision that we make. But I, I am suggesting that there is a international move to isolate Israel. A number of countries have now cut diplomatic links with Israel, Chile, Colombia, Bolivia, South Africa. And there's big pressure in Spain to do likewise, uh, coming from Podemos, which is in the government. They're publicly arguing we need to expel the ambassador. And that if Ireland as a European country was to do so, or if Spain was to do so, any European country doing so would have a big impact. Um, mm. Again, I'm not saying that in and of itself it stops Israel bombing and assaulting and everything else and its siege. But I am saying it adds pressure on uh, Israel. It's Very little pressure, thing. though, if Israel has the support of the US, Germany and the UK, I'm sure you'll agree. Well, I think it begins to undermine the idea, which obviously Ursula von der Leyen gave when she went to Israel and gave you know, the green light for the genocidal assault that is taking place. It begins to show that she was not speaking for all Europeans. I don't even think she was speaking for a majority mm. of Europeans. So it, it punctures for Israel of support in uh, the the West. Um, mm. I think the other thing, I think, you know, this argument that we can't expel the ambassador because we need to have relations in order to get our citizens back ignores what is happening right now. I mean, we have these relations right now. We're not getting our citizens back. And if you look at the numbers of people who have come out from other countries versus no Irish allowed out, no Brazilians allowed out, whereas thousands, a couple of thousands of other nationalities, US, Germany, mm. Britain have been allowed out, it is pretty evident that Israel is holding our citizens in Gaza, refusing to allow them out, to punish Ireland for its vote in favour of a ceasefire. Are you not making? Are, are you not arguing against your own position, though? I mean, does that not make the point uh, that uh, we shouldn't seek to expel the ambassador uh, because they'll be fed up with us, uh, and uh, the people who will suffer uh, will be those who are, are stuck in Gaza at the moment? I mean, if you look at what's happening in Ireland, uh, I think there's been some very strong messaging with uh, Leo Varadkar, for example, saying uh, that they're acting in revenge, and compare that to Germany for for example, where I'm told that they've taken out billboard campaigns, the German government have taken out yeah. billboard campaigns where at bus stops, almost you can't go anywhere in Germany without seeing uh, advertisements uh, stating that the German government fully supports Israel. So yes, I, I think that if you compare the reaction of the Irish government to Sorry, Paul, we're uh, we're, we're being plagued by a terribly bad uh, phone line. Uh, I, I'm not sure if it's possible to improve on that, uh, but uh, we, we didn't hear it that time. Maybe we'll try that uh, again. You were going to say, if you compare what yep. the Irish government is saying to Ursula von der Leyen uh, or, or the German government for that matter, uh, I, I take it you were going to say um, that uh, you're happy with that in that context, but we could go a lot further. Like, so we, we, we look good compared to these countries that are cheering is off. But is that really enough? 
in contact before our eyes. The Irish government is going to go beyond, you know, pretty mild criticism, considering what is taking place, pretty mild criticism of Israel, to actually take act. And there are concrete things they can do. So expelling the Israeli ambassador is one. Another they could do is, I mean, Leo Varadkar two days ago said that the allegations of war crimes by Israel should be investigated by the International Criminal Court. Mm. The Irish government can make that happen. It can make a referral to the International Criminal Court under Article 4 of the Rome Statute. I think the Taoiseach argued that with you, saying it wasn't up to the Irish government to refer it, did you not? He did, and he's, yeah. and he's absolutely wrong. Um, I came back to him later on the day, explained why he's, got, he's wrong, and I'll give you an example of why he's wrong, is that in the case of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Ireland did precisely that. We made a referral under Article 14, exactly, exactly as we're arguing, to the International Criminal Court, so there could be an investigation immediately. The difference is that if there is no member state or no state complaint, um, it's a long, torturous process which may or may not end up in an investigation. Um, whereas you get to short-circuit all of that if any state makes a, makes a referral directly to the International Criminal Court, you can immediately commence an investigation which is precisely what's needed now, which is what the Irish government argued in terms of Russian invasion of Ukraine, and the same standards should be applied now. Given your feelings on the Israeli ambassador, I take it you want to accept an invitation to go to the embassy to watch video footage of what happened on October 7th, the Hamas attack on Israel. I read in the Irish Independent as well that the Kian Korla Sean Freel uh, denied uh, the ambassador uh, access to Leinster House to show this video to politicians. No, I, I wouldn't. Um, it's not because I, I doubt that there were, you know, horrific things carried out by Hamas on October the 7th that are, you know, awful things. I don't doubt that. But this is part of a propaganda campaign by the Israeli regime to try and turn the tables um, because public opinion internationally and in Ireland has gone uh, against them because people can see for themselves what they're doing in terms of targeting hospitals, residential homes, ambulances, etc. Um, so I, I'm not going to participate in this propaganda exercise of the Israeli regime to pretend that history started on October 7th and to pretend that nothing has happened since October 7th mm. um, in terms of, you know, a month has passed, over 10,000 Palestinian lives uh, have been uh, lost. Mm. Uh, we were listening earlier to Benjamin Netanyahu speaking earlier in the week to ABC News, uh, essentially saying that Israel is going to reoccupy Gaza when all of this is over. Uh, it seems as though that does have the support of the American government. They say that they're against it on one hand, but they concede that uh, it may be necessary on a transitional basis. Does that concern you? Absolutely. I mean, I, I do think it looks clearer and clearer what the Israeli war aims are, which were initially you know, not entirely clear and perhaps not entirely clear in their own minds. But it seems to me that a kind of long-term active occupation and um, attempted expulsion of a large portion of the people from, from Gaza... Into the Egyptian desert? Yeah, I think that's what, that's what they've said pretty openly. I mean, one of their ministers, who was then forced to resign, said, you know, they, they, they need to go into the Sinai Desert or go to Ireland... Um, but I, I think that does reflect the viewpoint that, like, they, they want to expel Palestinians. And that's that's what we've seen since the establishment of the Israeli state. It is based on the forcible displacement and expulsion of Palestinians. And that is ongoing. And it has obviously stepped up since October the 7th um, with this um, with this attempt to, to literally take over 
um, Gaza. I, I would also say, though, like I'm, I don't think it'll work out well for them because they're going to be faced with a population that are oh. just won't just give up and okay. will struggle against mm. uh, their occupation and with the support of very large sections of the world. And I think public opinion mm. internationally, I mean, Ireland has always been a bit of an outlier in the Western world in terms of very broad support for the Palestinians. But I think internationally things have moved against Israel. I mean, even in America, uh, a big majority of people now favour uh, a ceasefire, which is opposed by the US government and opposed by uh, the Israelis. So I, I think mm. things, in, in a sense, in a broad strategic sense, are not going to go well mm. um, for the Israeli establishment here. Yeah, and uh, I suppose the Israelis will have to consider if they do flatten Gaza and destroy everything in it, including its population, well then uh, it may uh, see retaliation uh, come its way from the West Bank and uh, indeed from Lebanon. Uh, this may run for some time uh, and we may really just be at the beginning as horrific and hor- horrifying uh, and as uh, stomach-churning as this is. Uh, this has the potential to get an awful lot worse, doesn't it? Yeah, I, I think it does, absolutely. It has the potential to spill into re- um, conflict. Um, I think the capacity of the Palestinian Authority to control the West Bank to continue to act as effectively an arm, security arm of the Israeli state is really in doubt. I just think their authority is completely undermined now. Um, people will, in the West Bank, understandably, correctly, want to you know, join in an uprising against Israeli uh, occupation. So I, I think the whole situation is going to be destabilized. Um, I think, you know, there's a large degree to which the war aims of Israel are dictated by the uh, personal needs of Netanyahu. I mean, whenever this war, this immediate phase of this war stops, Netanyahu is under serious pressure. But his his whole political life has has been spent trying to maintain power despite all the allegations and I think lots of evidence of corruption and so on. Um, But like, he faces very significant criticism at home in Israel because of not anticipating October 7th. As long as the war continues um, in this phase, he gets to say, well, we're in war mode, we need to be united, etc. So I think actually it's in his interest to continue this instability um, and to continue the you know, really brutal war on the on the Palestinian people. Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment. Paul Murphy, thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Paul Murphy, People Before Profit TD. Michael, so that everyone has electricity when and where they need it. I was talking to Paul Murphy before the break. It's not the first time Paul has been on the programme uh, this week uh, because we heard him speak in uh, the Dáil on yesterday's programme. That was when both he and Joan Collins raised uh, an issue with uh, the Taoiseach on Tuesday and had some calls uh, for investigations into the death of Margaret Bracken, whose body was discovered at her home in Dundalk on the 16th of December 2019. In relation to to the sad death of Margaret Bracken, and may I once again extend my condolences to her family and uh, all those who know her. Um, I'm afraid I'm not familiar with the details of the case, although I I am aware of it. Um, My understanding is that the decision on whether or not an inquest is carried out is a matter for the county coroner. Um, And obviously, if there's any issue around... Uh, guard actions, uh, they would be best investigated uh, by means of a complaint to, to GSOC. Um, but I'll certainly um, let, let Mr McEntee know that it was raised here uh, in the Dáil again today. Right, that's uh, the Taoiseach Leo Bradker. 
Let's uh, speak uh, to Margaret Bracken's daughter, Susan, who's on the phone. Good morning, Susan, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme. I'm very well, thanks. Uh, And I'm very glad that you've uh, come on to the programme because you have many questions, uh, as we heard through the contributions from Paul Murphy and Joan Collins on the programme yesterday about the death of your mother. She passed away four years ago at this stage. Uh, and yeah, four years on the 16th of December. You have more, questions, you have more questions than answers, but uh, I, I suppose yeah. that the one thing that you can say uh, without any question is, is your mother died of a heart attack, didn't she? Yes. But we believe the heart attack was taken was the cause of the attack of our handbag. We don't understand why she'd be stripped naked at the front door. These are all things that don't, doesn't really sit right with mum's character. Mm. You know, and um, will I give you a rundown of what happened on the day? Yeah, please do. Um, your mother was 68 years of age, uh, living on the Avenue Road. Uh, your sister tried to get in touch with her and uh, there was no response. I think you said not to worry because she might be having a drink, but then you got worried the following day. Was that right? So my sister in Dublin he phoned us on the Sunday and was saying, I can't get through to mum. She wasn't getting she hadn't so far from the Saturday. So we just me and Maria said, you know, maybe she's having a drink, we'll go down in the morning. Mm. So at about eleven o'clock, me and my sister Maria and my husband went down to my mum's house and her blinds was open, the key at the front door went and opened. So we we knew something wasn't right. So we phoned the guards and we asked the guards to come down. Two young guards came down and they kicked in mum's front door. But upon kicking in the front door, the door closed and they had to kick it in a second time. My husband was there and when he kicked it in a second time, my husband shouted for me and my sister to stay back. And he came over and he told us mum was naked behind the front door. Well, her bottom set of false teeth was in the bottom of her, like hanging out of her mouth. So... We weren't allowed in. Two senior guards was called down. The inspector was called Lee Marchibald and the sergeant was called Freda McCaig. They stayed for approximately seven minutes. They said, sorry for the death of your mum. They went away. Quinn's uh, funeral home came down. Mum was removed. Around one o'clock we got into mum's house. When we entered into mum's house, we could see straight away the plugs were all unplugged in the hallway. Her top Keep was beside the stairs at the back of the house. And mm. um, her clothes, was, her trousers was pulled inside out from the, in the kitchen. Her bank card was lying on the ground. Everything was kind of a mess. Mm. It was completely out of character for the way Mum lived her life. It was your mother's house, but it, it didn't look like uh, your mother's house or the way your mother would have had the house. She wouldn't have uh, pulled the plugs out. Uh, mm, no. Uh, and no, there were there were bills and things like that on the table, and they'd been moved, and the house had been cleaned made. up. Yeah. Uh, and your mother didn't walk around the house naked. I, I think you said she was old school in that no. sense. Mm. Yeah, she was mm. old school. She would have gone up, dressed, getting herself washed at the sink. Mm. Uh, upstairs, she'd come back down. She'd be all dressed. You would never see my mum ever walking around her house naked. No, mm. she had her right breast off. She had cancer. Off. Uh, maybe seven years ago, eight years ago, and she was she was in remission for us. Mm. Uh, just 
just the way the whole house was. It just wasn't right. Yeah. You know. But you haven't been able to get any answers as to what might have happened. Uh, one of the big red flags, if you like, uh, was that your mum's handbag was missing. Your mother was never seen without her handbag. Is that right? No. Mum always had a handbag with her. So she did. So when she mum won the lotto back in 08. She won the lotto plus one. Mm. So... Mum was an awful woman for holding at least 20 grand in her bag at all times. <laughs> she, she won 350,000, didn't she? She did, yeah. Right. In and, way. And, and she was going around with 20 grand in her bag. And, and, yeah. And what, what, would she have had other amounts of cash stuffed here and there in the cash in, in the house? Because she didn't like banks. No, she didn't like banks. She didn't like having to go and explain why she wanted her money out of the bank. The bank would always say to Mum, you know, why do you want... 5,000. So mum got clever and started saying, I want 4,950. Because then the witness asked her, what did she need the money for? Right. So she done that four times a year. But she also got her weekly money put through her bank, you know, like her pension. Mm. So mum would live an awful pension, but would have had the back of money there, just in case she needed it. You know? Mm. But, but, but the bag was missing. The bag was gone. Mm. The bag was gone. The neighbour was outside my mum's house before we even entered it, telling us that he put her handbag behind the wardrobe. And at the time, we were kind of looking at him, but we were obviously shocked. So we never really thought about it. But then when we went looking for the bag, mum's bank card was lying on the floor in the kitchen, as I said, and couldn't find the handbag. The handbag was completely gone. Mm. So I phoned the guard back 31 times. First of all, I went to look at the modem in the kitchen. I plugged everything back and I went for the modem, but the modem was gone. Do you know the way you rewind back there? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I got one of the boys, one of the children, to go up into the attic. It was a separate attic, attic mum and two attics. The, in the bedroom, in the attic in the bedroom is where the hard drive was. So that was there, but we couldn't rewind it. So I phoned the guards back 31 times. And it was after, it was half eight at night, two other guards came down. And they took the CTV camera and they went away. The, the next day, Mam's body came home. And when Mam was taken in, we noticed her, the left-hand side of her head was marked. And the, her, her right fingernails was painted. Her right finger nails were painted because her hand was black and blue. Mm. So, once again, got back on to the guards that day. They said, look, it's too close to Christmas. We didn't know the procedure, uh, Michael. Mm. Just didn't know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, after Mum was buried and all, it was on the 30th of December, we went back up to the guards' barracks to Freedom McKay, the sergeant. And we told her about Mam's handbag gone and how the guards had come back and took the CTD footage and told her there was approximately 20 grand in Mam's handbag. She laughed at us and she said to us, where would our Mam get that sort of money? We told her she'd won the lotto. So go with, she told us to go on home and grieve. Mm. It, was on, it was on the 2nd of January, I went into the guards' barracks again. I couldn't, I couldn't accept it, Michael. Yeah. So the 2nd of January, I went back in and Mick Sheridan, he was a detective. He is a detective in Dundalk and he went to shake my hand to pay his, con- his condolences to me. 
And I pulled him over and I said, please help me, please help me. I explained to him that the cameras were sent in that night on the 16th of December. He wasn't aware of it. He did go looking for the cameras, but they didn't know the two guards that came and took the cameras. Mm-hmm. So that day, Mick Sheridan sent down uh, two detectives to my sister Maria's house. Mm-hmm. They kind of gave them a rundown of what happened. And on the 6th of January, Richie Brown, another detective, went into the court and he got court orders on my mum's money at the bank account. Right, OK. So we didn't, we still weren't being believed, Michael. Mm. So in February 2020, we got on to the Ombudsman's man and we explained what had went on. And the Ombudsman's man had arranged then in April for us to go in to see the, the, super, the then superintendent, Jerry Corley. Uh, Mick Sheridan was also in the room and Richie Brown was in the room. Uh, Richie Brown was given, he was, uh, he was given to us as a liaison officer. Mm. But then this, this was seven months a- after your mother's death, wasn't it? This was five months after okay. mum's death. And the, 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 the scene hadn't been preserved, there was no forensics, very difficult. Do you mind, Susan, I'm sorry, but do, do, do you mind not naming names, uh, if you don't mind, because I, I know that there's also... Uh, a theory that you have about this and uh, there's a suspicion about uh, what might have happened to your mother and if somebody else was involved in your mother's death but if we could tell the story without naming names I'd really appreciate it um, okay. um, but you, um, the, the the CCTV showed nothing as well. That, but that was just on the front door. Um, th- can we just go back a, a little bit as well? Because there were a number of uh, alarm bells, and I, I think one of them was to do uh, with drink um you, you you describe your mother as a, a mrs brown type character and she liked a drink you said that when you called her and couldn't get her she might have been having a drink but her, her drink of choice was cider wasn't it uh, and then no her drink of choice would have been wine oh, she wine. would have drinking vodka years ago but the, right. but there was vodka in the house but she couldn't but drink no she was the, a, uh, and she didn't drink no, with the radiation tablets that she took, she couldn't drink vodka. Right, but the, but, the, but the vodka was gone, was it? No, there was a half a bottle, a big bottle, a half a bottle left out of a big, big bottle. Mm, so half the bottle was gone. That's uh, yeah. uh, And uh, the question is, where did it go? Because there was uh, no alcohol in your mother's system. No, there wasn't. Right. So you believe somebody might have broken in, do you? Yes, we do. Okay. But that hasn't been investigated? No. Well, the guards never sealed off Mam's house until the 11th of June 2021. They went in and took the forensic den, but everything had been cleaned. Yeah. Six months later. And you heard uh, 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 about uh, somebody locally paying off a, a drug debt? And we did, yeah. There's questions about where they got that money. €12,000, was it? And, and you're saying it all doesn't add up. Um, no. th- th- there's lots of reasons to be suspicious. Uh, there's nothing happening. We heard the Taoiseach say there he's going to refer it to Helen McEntee, the Minister for Justice. Uh, maybe. But Michael, I put it to Helen McEntee, and Helen McEntee, she got the file from Dundalk, but she sent me on the emails, and the guards are saying 
that they come back to mum's house at half five and took the cameras. The guards wasn't there till half eight that night. Mm. Okay. You know, um, yeah. Mrs. McEntee was lied to several times mm. in the emails. And then after she went through it all, I sent the pictures of mum's house to show where she where she was found dead and stuff. Mm. You know, and Mrs. Helen McEntee then said, oh, this is just a matter for the guards solely. But we didn't want to know about it. But you want some sort of investigation into this now? Um, we do want an investigation. Like, my mum was 68 years of age. Yeah. You know, she didn't deserve what happened to her. And you haven't been issued with a, a death certificate. Why is that? Well, the guards have told our solicitor and that that they are not ready for court. They told the coroner that they're not ready for court. And... Um, in November of 2021, we were handed a letter from the from the guards just to state for them. The DP, the, the man was arrested, mm. and a file went to the DPP. But in the file, there was insignificant evidence, and they asked us to appeal that decision. And as we said, why would we appeal when you sit and do your job? There is no evidence. So that's why we're calling for an independent inquiry into our mum's death. Okay. Well, perhaps there'll be some attention given to the situation that you're in, which is pretty awful, to say the least, uh, Susan, as a result of the TDs raising it in the doll and because you've joined us on the programme today. Uh, Paul and Joan Collins, I have to say, from the bottom of my heart, thank you very much to them, to them, the both. They were amazing the other day, as you could see. Yeah. We've been working with Joan now for the last two years. Our councillors in Dundalk, local councillors, they didn't want to know. They had to work with the, with the guards, so they really didn't suit the narrative to work with us. Susan, uh, I hope that uh, we'll speak to you um, again and that there will be a development, a positive development, uh, because you're fighting this hard, uh, obviously, uh, four years uh, since your mother's death uh, in December. I have to leave it there for the moment, though, Susan. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, Thank you very much, Mike. Thank you indeed. That's uh, Susan Bracken, uh, whose mother, Margaret, died uh, at her home on Avenue Road in Dundalk in very mysterious circumstances four years ago. The Michael Reid Show with AirGrid, managing and developing the national electricity grid so that it's fit for our current needs and ready for our future ones. We'll finish today with a local story that really is hard to believe. There's a section of Carno and Drogheda and indeed surrounding areas that have been left with no water. Now, they're mostly elderly residents, but there's one family with a young baby. Now, they've no... They've a dribble of water from the taps downstairs and nothing upstairs, so they can't heat radiators, they can't bathe, they can't wash clothing, they can't even flush the toilet. Now, it's been going on, they've had no water for three months. Ishka Erin eventually put a temporary fix in. That lasted about three weeks. They've been told now by Ishka Erin that since the end, they've had no water since the end of October. They're now told it'll be December. Now, the buck has been passed between Ishka Erin and Loud County Council, but primarily the, the matter should be dealt with by Ishka Aaron. Now, if that's their idea, customer, ser- customer service or duty of care to customers, it's totally unacceptable. Right. I'm you, sure Deputy. you'd agree. Thank Can you. the matter, given that elderly people yeah. and people with young Time babies have been Thank told 
directive to wait almost five Minister, months for water. Yeah, we're over time. Can the matter be, be expedited, well, Taoiseach, Minister, or Minister, Minister, if I forward you on the details? Because oh, it's just not acceptable. Minister O'Donnell. That's very difficult for the people, the residents there. Uh, if you send on the details to me, uh, the department will take it up with Ishgairn specifically, and maybe, we'll, maybe you might be able to give me more details on the specifics of what's happening there. And we'd look to resolve it for the residents. Minister Kieran O'Donnell and Sinn Féin TD Imelda Monster discussing the terrible dilemma that people in Carnog Brewer in Drogheda find themselves in. I think we'll hear more about that in the coming days. That's all we have time for for today. Brian Farley researched. Chris Murray was in the control tower. I'm Michael Godwilling. We'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. Listen back to the Michael Reed Show podcast on lmfm.ie or the LMFM app. The Michael Reed Show with AirGrid, managing and developing the national electricity grid so that it's fit for our current needs and ready for our future ones.